I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Madeira sits apart from the rest, in more ways than one. Geographically, a few nearby islands serve as neighbors in this otherwise lonely corner of the Atlantic Ocean. 6,500 years ago, there was an active volcano here, forming some of the unique topographical features you'll find on the island. But many of the animals on Madeira ended up here accidentally, a stowaway mouse or rat on a ship, a spider that hitched a ride on some rigging or on the back of a bird. And more than one person has shipwrecked on Madeira, or one of its neighbors. The ancient world knew about the island. Pliny may have mentioned the place. Plutarch probably wrote about it, and you can see it on some early seafaring maps. There's evidence of possible human arrival as early as about a thousand years ago. Large-scale settlement by humans occurred after Madeira was claimed for Portugal, by Prince Henry the Navigator in 1419. He also found the island when some of his mates accidentally shipwrecked nearby. Once Henry declared Madeira a prize for Portugal, Portugal needed to make sure that Madeira was profitable. And in the 1400s, that meant sugar. Before the wine trade took off, sugar cane and sugar beets were farmed to ultimately bring in money to the Portuguese crown. Later, distilled alcohol from sugarcane would be used to fortify wine for the long oceanic ship journeys. With transatlantic trade taking off and the new market of the American colonies, the island of Madeira was a natural place for European ships to stop before heading out to the Americas. A stop here would lessen the total consecutive days at sea by about one-sixth or one-seventh and the ship could stock up on any necessities or regroup after the journey start before the major six to eight week trek across the Atlantic. They could also stock up on, you know, all that wine that was there on Madeira. And the wine did have a big market in the 13 colonies. Just about everyone drank Madeira. The U.S. didn't have a domestic wine market at this time, and so most wine was pretty much imported. For a while, Madeira was taxed less than other beverages, plus it was travel-hardy and could last well on the transatlantic journey 
and in the hot United States summers. But during the American Revolution, Madeira was associated with Britain because it was traded by British merchants. John Hancock refused to pay taxes on one of his Boston shipments, which set the angry tone for the Boston Tea Party. No taxation without representation. Soon boycotts set in, and a large portion of the Madeira market moved from the colonies to India. Thomas Jefferson grew up on Madeira, but as president, he tried to steer the U.S. toward other wines, in part because later in life, after his time in France especially, he personally did not favor fortified wines anymore, and also because Madeira had too close of a tie with British oppression. Madeira has a unique tie to the history of the United States. The Declaration of Independence was toasted with Madeira, after all. But another thing that sets Madeira apart is its unique production method. In a previous episode, we heard how oxidizing grape must can actually enhance the future wine and make it less prone to oxidation down the line. Madeira takes this concept to a whole different level by oxidizing and heating the finished wine. Producers here purposefully cook, so to speak, the wines in heated warehouses or leave barrels out in the sun to mimic the journey in a hot ship's hold. And somehow the finished product isn't foul, but it's rather sturdy and can be magical on the palate. Madeira forces us to re-evaluate where we place the locus of quality as we evaluate wine. The distinctiveness comes from a blend of its grape variety and its treatment after fermentation. After the fortification and exposure to high temperatures, can the traditional notions of terroir, the nuances of soil, still emerge? Or does terroir become something different in this case? Recently, there has been chatter about the many dimensions of terroir. If you consider the complete wine experience, we have the usual terroir of land and environment of the vine, we have the unique personal terroir of the person drinking the wine, and we also have cellar terroir, or the environmental influence of what happens to the wine after fermentation, such as the molds in the cellars of Zillikin or Lopez, the influence of aging in this or that kind of oak, or of the slow and deliberate heating of wine in Madeira warehouses. The deliberate heating of Madeira wines can happen any number of ways. Barrels can be left out in the sun, or they can be stored in different parts of a hot warehouse. When it comes to the hot warehouse aging, you can compare this type of aging with almost nothing else except for bourbon. In bourbon warehouses, barrels full of the same initial product gain their distinctive final taste by where they were stored in the warehouse. Different bourbon masters have favorite spots in their warehouses for special single barrel bottlings. You'll find something similar happening in Madeira. Stay tuned to hear, among other things, how one Madeira producer moves different barrels to ideal spots in his warehouses to get just the right temperature on each different variety. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb 
at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content, as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T partners with an S dot com. Offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand. Ricardo Freitas of Barbeto in Madeira on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? Fine, thank you. Very nice to have you here. So the winery was founded by your grandfather. Yes, it was founded by my grandfather in 1946. And uh, he was accountant before in another wine company. And he decided to start his business alone. Why do you think he made that decision at that time? I mean, that's right after the war. He saw an opportunity there and he had a good um, view uh, of the business because he was accountant and also he saw I where think, the profit was. Yes, <laughs> probably yeah, he you saw know what I mean? you know accountants know lots of secrets no one sometimes even believe they know. And uh, many companies were closing at the time. So because they were closing, I think he saw an opportunity to open uh, one by his own, and he was a kind of visionary, so he succeeded. Because he purchased a lot of old stocks from other holders. Yes, he bought quite a big quantities of uh, old stocks from many old families that have been involved in the business before, or also owned vineyards in big properties at the time, and then uh, he managed to buy quite a few casks with wines like 1834, 1863, 1875, quite a lot of wines. What do you think your grandfather liked as a person? What was he? he was a very quiet person. He was incredibly quiet. It's funny because uh, very few people asked me about that question before. <laughs> Incredible. So, well, he was very quiet and... Um, he really liked a lot to stay at home. He smoked too much. Uh, if you find uh, photos of him, I think I've seen hundreds of photos of him. Until now, only one or two, he didn't have a cigarette in his hand or his mouth. It was incredible. But he was a avid reader, reading all the time. He had a huge library, more than 25,000 books. And uh, he was a good friend of his friends and uh, a good uh, uh, family member, I can say. And how do you think the Madeira industry, the wine industry, changed over the course of his career? What were the changes that happened when he was leading the company? I think my grandfather helped to change Madeira wine, especially from the marketing point of view. So he introduced new ideas to promote the wines uh, like uh, very funny advertisements, uh, new ways of advertising, and also the labels. So he presented very nice labels, and I think he was one of the first to have 
uh, you know, the symbol of the company, the logo of the company uh, with something that was different at the time. Did you see stylistic changes that were happening in the wines in terms of production during his era? Were there things that happened that changed? No, no, no. During his era, I think until 20 years ago, I can say, well, when I started working seriously in the company, the style of all companies was very similar. Some could have a little bit uh, more quality than others, but it was a kind of static Static wines. Frankly speaking, I didn't even like the wines from my company. Because originally you weren't in so much into wine yourself. No, I wasn't at all. I was... Um, since my 13 or 14, uh, my involvement in the wine was working in the summer holidays at the winery with my grandfather and with my mother later. It was just coming to help, doing all kinds of jobs. And... Um, I used to join my grandfather many times, many, many times, weekends, Saturdays afternoon, joined him in the library, helping him in the library. So I got some influence from him in what I studied at the university. That was history. But um, then I used to go to some meetings with my grandfather, you know, meetings with the exporters. I used to join him and with my mother also, but it was mainly a business of exporting bulk wine and uh, bottling some quantities. And um, when I started, um, 1989, it was more or less the same thing that I have seen when I was uh, 14 or 15 or 16, you see. And you got rid of the bulk wine side of Barbetto. Yeah, yeah. That was probably the most important decision ever taken in Barbetto. 1991, February 1991 was the last bulk shipment in Barbetto. Then we concentrated in our inventories, looking at the inventories, recovering the inventories, and then concentrate our efforts in the bottled wine. So instead of making wine for cooking or for some other simpler purpose, you wanted really fine wines. That was the goal. And of course, we have reduced considerably the sales. And it took us more than uh, eight years to recover you know, the financial position from bigger sales to lower sales, to balance our financial position. But while we were balancing the financial position, we had an important thing that was we were recovering and increasing our inventories in the traditional aging method, cask aging method. Which is more associated with the finer wines. Absolutely correct, yes. Barbetto has never really been a big holder of vineyards. It was always more about production and marketing and export. Uh, by tradition... Not only Barbato, but uh, all the companies in Madeira, until a few years ago, five to eight years ago, didn't own their vineyards. Uh, the business in Madeira, and still is about 80 or 90% of the total grapes produced, belong to farmers. Those farmers, you establish a relationship with them. I still buy grapes from farmers from the time of my grandfather and mother. And then 
you buy them the grapes and you make your own wine. Actually, two other companies have some vineyards, but uh, of course, they are big companies and uh, the vineyards they owned are not enough for their sales. I would say not even 10 or 20% of their sales. So most producers work with a number of small growers on island. Yeah. My smallest grower brings about 500, 600 kilos. The biggest, 25, 27 kilos. Depends on the year. And there's a difference of grape varieties involved. There is a big difference. Uh, We have, I would say, 70% of the total production accounts for the Tinta Negra. It's a red variety. That's 70%. From that grape variety, you can make the four types of wines. Dry, medium dry, medium sweet, or sweet. Then you have the white varieties. The Cercial for the dry, Verdalho for the medium dry, Boal for the medium sweet, and Malvasia, it's the oldest grape variety in the island, accounts for the sweet wine. Then you have two others produced in tiny quantities, that is Tarantaish, you can have a medium dry or medium sweet wine. And then you have the Bastardo that you can also make a medium dry or a medium sweet wine. Are those white as well, those last two? Trentage is white. Bastardo is, um, I don't say it is completely red. It's uh, like the juice is a kind of light rosé. Even though when I pour the wines, because when I pour them there, they tend to be brown because of the aging and cask and over time. They're white grapes. The situation about that is a little bit... Uh, there is a lot of discussion about that. And uh, I am always pointed out by the other producers <clears throat> because of that. Because uh, those colors, the dark colors on the wines, can only be achieved when you have a wine aging in cask for more than 60 or 70 years. In wines that have less than... Uh, 40 or 50 years, the colors are much lighter because the aging of the wine starts with very light color in the white varieties. And then with the aging, there is uh, the uniqueness of Madeira coming from this special aging that you have an oxidation of the wine that is no more than the concentration of what remains in the cask. And it's the water evaporating from the wine. So consequently, you have concentration. You have concentration in the acidity, in the alcohol content, and of course, in the color. So that light color, like a white wine, you can imagine that as the beginning, the starting, that caramelizes along the years. The sugar caramelizes, so the wine, it becomes golden color. And more and more years along becomes very dark. But you need 30 or 40 years to have darker colors. The darker colors you find actually in the wines are artificial. They've been added in other people's wines. Absolutely correct. They are added, which is, it's just a practice. It's an old practice in Madeira. Uh, I have nothing against what the other people do, but in my company, that was one of the first things I changed. So I decided to stop changing the natural and beautiful colors of the wines. So I stopped adding the 
like a caramel or something? yes yeah the caramel i stopped adding it and uh, because i feel the flavors and the aromas much more pure and natural and you can distinguish the different grape varieties if you do not add anything but uh, of course i'm criticized a lot by other producers because of that but uh, i think uh, I have nothing to do with what the other producers do. It was something I decided for my company. It was a practice from my grandfather, from my mother. And even during the first years when I started in the company, we still kept it. But um, now it's specific in the company. It was not specific to change this in the company. It took me more than five years to convince my mother to stop that. She was afraid to change. I, I can understand her. You took <clears> over in 91. You'd come back not thinking that you were going to uh, do that. In fact, I started in 89, but uh, I was, um, let's say, permanently after 91. Yes. Okay. I was never expecting to work in that business, as you can imagine. I was already teaching when I came to the company. I was teaching history in the high school, and at the same time, I was helping my mother in another business we had that was a, a bottle store, uh, you know, a wine shop. A wine shop. Yes. And what was it that drew you to work with your mother and to eventually take over the winery? Well, there was a big reason for that. Uh, thanks to her, I had a good knowledge of the English language, written and uh, spoken. And for that reason, my mother needed help for a new project that was associated to a joint venture we were going to start. In, nine, in fact, we started around the 90, the discussions, when I joined and came to help her. And it's a, a joint venture with the Japanese family, Kinoshite. She took on a partner in a company, and there was a lot of talking and communication about how to do that. Oh, yes. Huge daily communication. Because it was an exchange of information in order they could make the proper decision to join, to be part of Barbatu or not. So this was more than one year. So along this year, I was teaching and helping my mother in the communication, organizing information to be sent at the time by fax. It was crazy. Then... At the same time, you know, I have access to a lot of information. So uh, from a financial and structure point of view, I knew and learned a lot about the company. And um, it was the case that in 1991, when we signed the papers for the joint venture, the Kinoshita family noticed I was not going to belong yeah, to yeah. the company. Yeah, the person they'd been talking to yes. wasn't going to stay. And yeah. they thought that was odd, probably. Yeah, it was a big problem. So they decided, they said, if I wasn't going to stay, they wouldn't sign the papers. I because see. <laughs> yeah, it was a funny, I was astonished. Because I was, you know, mentally prepared to come help my mother, help the company, do my job, and then go home or go to school. And she was getting older. Yes, my mother was getting older, and she was anxious to get retired. My older brother was also there, but he was not very good in uh, many things like the communication. He didn't speak good English. And, um, you know, there are differences among the people. Some are different from others, and brothers are not exception. So uh, when they said 
uh, I should stay. I, in fact, I wanted to stay, but I never thought about that. I only thought about that when, two or three days before the official signature, they were checking everything. So we had to find a solution for that. They wanted me to stay as director in the company full-time. The solution was each part was going to have two directors, and the solution was each part started with three directors from each side, which is for a small company, it's lots of people. And since then, I got involved all areas of the company and uh, the production inclusive. But um, my first harvest was uh, already 1989 and then 1990. But these two, I wasn't involved in 1991 a little. I wasn't uh, 100% involved in any kind of winemaking. I was just a kind of observer. But my first job was waiting the grapes and passing. Weighing them. Yeah. yeah. And then writing the receipts. It was very useful because it helped me to know the farmers. So it must be interesting to start at a winery and realize that the produce of this winery, you probably won't be evaluated on for like 50, 60, 70 years. You're in charge of a harvest. You start making changes and you think to yourself, you know, I don't think anyone's going to notice for like a century. That's an interesting place yeah, to be. It's, uh, it's incredible because Madeira wine is one of those wines that uh, only the long term works. But I don't think it's exactly like that. Because uh, there are wines with five years aged in cask, seven years, and then you have the five, you have the ten, that uh, when you are making it, you will know that uh, uh, still in your life, they're going to be drunk by many people. But then you have this extraordinary part that is some wines that I will leave in the company can be drunk easily without many problem by other people 100 or more years from now. That's incredible. So tasting through that kind of cellar, I feel like because your grandfather bought stocks from other families, you see kind of these historical connections to all of these different families that are long past. Some families indeed have been involved in the grape production and also some in wine business uh, for much longer than my family. And uh, my grandfather had very good friends. He had very good relationships and uh, it was easy for him to buy these wines I think most of them have been sold much more on a friendly friendship basis than business basis, I think. He knew he would never become a rich person in the wine business. My mother, I think, also knew the same. And I am also sure that uh, I will never become a very rich person involved in the wine business. And I don't want to be very rich. I prefer to be a very happy person and getting realized every day in the wines I make. That's the most important. And then, of course, you have some profits at the end of the year. That is not a lie. But uh, things should be made always in a balance, very balanced. Because the wine business and Madeira wine business also, you can't take too much money out of the company because you need the money for the harvest, to pay for the grapes, 
and then you have a lot of money tied up in inventory because if you don't have all that money tied up in inventory, the quality of the wine will suffer. It means you need large inventory to age for many years ahead and then have a very good quality in the wine. And that's something that since I have started working in the company and we started the joint venture, we have invested a lot in our inventories. Uh, I remember I remember uh, some harvests we were buying 30% more than our needs based in previous year sales to improve, increase, improve the inventories. And uh, 12 years later, we could see good results around 2001, 2002, started bottling some very interesting and different things. So you started single grape ferments and looking at how it was aging in, in different circumstances. Yeah, that was funny. That was something that I have started already, a kind of experimental spirit and experimenting since uh, 1991 harvest. I, we already did that. It was like I wanted to learn about the capacity of each grape variety. That was very important. And uh, you read things, but you never know. And there is not many things to read about winemaking in Madeira or even about the grapes. Not much. And at the time, even less. So I started working, for example, because we had the we had this, it was a good thing to have four different aging warehouses. So with different climate or environment in each of it, one was hotter, one was colder, you know, the differences were important. So I decided to start experimenting the same wine in the same casks in the different warehouses. Then, for example, same wine in the same warehouse in different casks. So all this helped me to understand the evolution of the wines and understand the grape varieties by itself. What are those grape varieties like individually? Individually, well, then I had to associate something that uh, I was forgetting at the time, that is how to pick the grapes. Oh, okay. So And the origin of the grapes. That's why uh, I have noticed it was important to keep the acidity and get good acidity when you buy the grapes or when you pick the grapes. You didn't want them overripe. Yes. So for that reason, many kinds of grapes, I pick them one week or 10 days before the full or complete maturation. So then I had to try aging of the wine with uh, wines from grapes with full maturation and lower maturation. So all this helped me to understand that the Cercial, for example, is a, a more acidic grape. Seems uh, like it, right? In the wines, it seems like it. Yes. You know, old Cercial can be really... Yeah, it can really be tough wine. Biting, yes. know, sharp. You know. Yes. Also, one thing that helped me to think a lot for the actual wines I make is... I was uh, lucky, very lucky, to work with my mother with old wines, quite a lot, during many years, even helping her at home, opening old bottles, putting in damage on. This was a crazy work. So also helped me to see 
how the wines from the different grape varieties looked like with 100 or 120 or more years. And in fact, the Cercial was really tough. That's when started blending. I have noticed that it was impossible to have a good Cercial. A good Cercial, a good wine, a good wine Cercial must have good acidity. But you cannot have it completely dry. So I balance it with some Cercial, sweeter Cercial in the blend, and then you have some sugar to balance the high acidity. Traditionally, all the Cercial you buy, you just allow full fermentation. When I buy Cercial to make the wines, one part of it, I stop the fermentation when it is at a medium dry level, you see. So 10 years later or 15 years later, when I am about to blend, I have a very dry Cercial and I have a sweeter Cercial to balance. So all these things results from a daily thinking about what you are doing and of course a permanent understanding of the grape varieties and the wines you can make from them. So what about the other three, the Verdello, Boal? And well, they are more Pacific than, uh, I would say, more Pacific than the Cercial. But, um, for example, the Verdello is the grape variety that has higher potential alcohol from all the grapes. Oh, that's interesting, because that's not what you would think. Like, you know. So I have to pick it. With You can get 13 alcohol content sometimes, and I pick it with 10, 10.5. Then I do not stop the fermentation in a medium dry level. I stop the fermentation of the verdelho in a drier level but with sugar. Because I have understood that along the aging, if you have concentration, that concentration will make you reach the medium dry level. And with the Boal, is the same. I stop the fermentation in a medium dry level because along the aging with the concentration, the wine will become medium sweet. There is concentration of the sugar. Another thing that I have not well, and Verdelho is a grape variety that uh, makes wonderful wines, very elegant, also with good acidity, if it's not too sweet when you pick the grapes, and very exuberant. The Boal, for example, is a grape variety that I don't run to my... I need to have Boal, of course, but it's that grape variety that's really a little bit boring for me because it's a lot about structure. It's a lot about structure, the Boal, so there is not huge exuberance. The aging is perfectly normal, nothing happens, so you get the concentration, but when you are making the wine... The aromas are not so fun and beautiful like the other varieties, from my point of view. But then you have the Malvasia with a detail that I have learned with the Malvasia. Don't make Malvasia too sweet. If you go and measure the sugar content of my Malvasia compared to my other colleagues of other producers, my Malvasia is the driest of all. I never exceed the 100, 105 grams because the Malvasia needs the acidity. If it is too sweet, you get bored when you drink the wine. So everything is question of balance in the blends or in the aging. 
because in the aging, there is an important detail that I have learned due to the fact I had four or five different aging warehouses. I noticed that the hotter warehouses were not so good for the style of wine I liked. Because the hotter warehouses, the hot temperature was influencing much more the sugar side of the wine than the acidity side. So I had during many years to move wines from one warehouse to another. It was crazy work to have wines with high concentration in the sugar, slow down that high concentration and give the possibility to the acidity to reach a little bit closer to the sugar. Because in the warmer warehouses, the sugars were caramelizing faster. Correct. And then you don't allow the acidity to come up. So actually, at the new winery, we built something kind of revolutionary where you have different areas, you have different environments there where you have a hotter area if you want to keep some wines there. But you have quite a lot of areas where the uh, roof is made of concrete, big concrete. And those areas are very fresh. So you can actually manipulate that through the aging of the wine. You can say... Of course, I manipulate all the aging by nature. Let's say that I manipulate nature. Uh, I created different conditions and I can manipulate taking advantage of nature. I can manipulate the different concentrations of the wines to have them more balanced because you can have two kinds of balance. You have the balance in the blend that is easy, with the experience becomes easy, I think. But then you have another important thing, which is try to have your wines aging balanced. And you can only have that if the temperatures of the warehouses are under your control fresher or hotter in different places. But I was lucky with that because after a few years, I started understanding that why is this wine coming different from this warehouse and is not coming the same from that warehouse? So if you'd only had one warehouse, you may never have made that realization. Yeah, that was lucky to have that. But then I just started making my own conclusions and thinking about what you are doing. So with those grape varieties, are they different in kind on the vine? Are some more susceptible to rot or to drying, pastelage? The, For example, the Tarantage is the most delicate and the Bastardo is extremely delicate. The skins are uh, very soft. Oh, that's interesting because you don't see those two anymore much. So yeah, that might well, be why. Yeah, in the Bastardo, I have uh, recovered uh, one vineyard of Bastardo. And since 2007, I am producing wines from Bastard, but haven't been bottled yet. The Tarantège, only this year, after many years, I have purchased the first Tarantège grapes, something to continue now for the future. But in Madeira, the different microclimates also bring you extra difficulties. And um, I think... The Cercial has a maturation problem all the time. On the it, vine. On the vine. Um, then the Verdalho can have a, a potritis problem uh, if you don't uh, pick it on the right moment. That's why I prefer 
lower alcohol content. Also, I prefer very clean and sane grapes instead of high alcohol content. Because the, the Verdale, it's a small bunch, all close to each other, and there is very little breathing. So if you have fog or situations like that, you can have the grapes very uh, with um, bad quality. The Boal is, is resistant. It's a big bunch, but it's resistant. And the Malvasia has good resistance. But as I said, 10, 10.5 for me is perfectly enough to pick the grapes. In this case, in the Verdelho and in the Malvasia, the Boal, the same. The Cercial, uh, it's very difficult to reach or to achieve or pick the grapes with high uh, potential. So for me, the Cercial, the average is 9, 9.5 when I pick them. So does that imply that there are certain parts of the island that are better at growing certain kinds of grapes because of either elevation or exposure or soil type? Or Yes. The... Um, Soil type is very similar all over, so it doesn't make big influence. What makes a bigger influence is north coast, south coast, and altitude. You have these microclimates, and the microclimates have this influence all over the agriculture in general. Of course, more influence on the grapes by tradition and by experience, but I think there is still a lot to be done on that experiment more varieties in areas where people say it's not good. Probably it's good. If we haven't tried, we will never know. In Madeira, you have to try. No theories, only practice. Because it's an island with lots of different climates, and you should try. And uh, that's what I have been doing all my life, trying everything that came to my mind in the wine. So in the vineyards, it's just small plots, and you could try. I think probably it's something that uh, the... Um, Local government could do, experiment more instead of saying, oh, that's not good. If you haven't tried, you will never know. Because um, it's a rich soil. The production of grapes is very big per square meter, per hectare. And uh, even uh, with higher yields than uh, normal, than other areas in other countries, the quality is good. So... If you try, maybe you can have more possibilities to have other varieties in other locations on the island. Do you see different aging apices in bottle for those different grape varieties? If I were to open up a Malvasia mm-hmm. and it were 100 years old, it might be at one spot. But if I were to open up a Circeal that was 100 years old, that might be at a different spot. I mean, do you start to open them at different times based on the grape variety? The development of the Circeal is much slower than the development of a Malvasia while aging in cask. And if you put me two bottles, one of Circeal, one of Malvasia, both with 100 years, I know the Malvasia will be more pleasant than the Circeal. Just for one reason, the difference in sugar. If you have a wine aging, with more sugar, no matter the grape variety, it will become more concentrated faster than the drier. And are the casks that they age in somewhat uniform, or is there different kinds um, of casks? In Barbatio, uh, most of the casks are 620 liters, most of them. But I have 700, 400, 
550. I have uh, many others and they have been very useful for my initial experiments. And of course, as smaller it is the cask, more concentrated the wine will become also during the aging. For example, if you put Malvasia in a 450 liter cask, at the same time you have a 620 liter cask with the same wine in the same location, the 450 will concentrate, let's say in a race, will arrive two, three years earlier, in 10 years, will gain two, three years. It's a lot. That's why you have to think, for example, if you have Cercial, you should use smaller casks than Malvasia, that this is a comparison, than Malvasia that you are going to use 620 liter casks. So you have to play with all these things. And I have learned this based in thinking with my experiment and my experience along the years. It's incredible. You learn things every day. Where does the wood come from for the cask? In Barbatio, mainly French oak. But many companies also use American oak. Very old casks. How many years are we talking about? I'm sure I have casks with over 100 years. They were already very old when my grandfather bought them. So that was many years ago. So you can imagine. And do you have to replace staves now and again because of the... Oh, yeah. Well, that's something that is a big headache because um, you have to take care of these casks like you take care of an old car, you know. Pay attention to all details. Preserve them because there are not many people available to make big repairs. If you have a big repair, there are not many coopers in the island to work. So these are white grape varieties. Do they go through mallow? Do all of these four grape varieties go through malolactic conversion? What I do is I allow the fermentation. I stop the fermentation and I keep the wines over the lees for um, usually four months. Okay. So no mallow. Instant, no. In, in stainless steel tanks. I see. I like to have the wines. Then the winter helps to clear the wines they settle by out. nature, they settle. I don't make any fining, anything. So I allow once again nature to act over the wines and then I pass them very clean to the casks. It's a great thing. No filtrations, nothing like that, just nature. It's very good. So, I mean, that's probably part of the reason that the acidity in the Cerciol is so high is that it doesn't go through any kind of mallow. Oh, yes, probably, yes. Also, but I think, you know, the first thing for the acidity in all the grapes is the soil. Even an orange in Madeira is not a beautiful orange, but the acidity is extremely high. Oh, interesting. So all the fruits in Madeira have this influence of the soil, and they are all more acidic than any other place. So what is that soil? It's volcanic soil. Yeah, okay. But does it overlap something? Like, is it volcanic on top, and then below it, it's something else? Uh, well, I don't have that uh, precise information, but um, the general classification is the volcanic, and it seems it's that origin that makes it... Uh, have more freshness. Yeah, yes, quite a lot. Because sometimes um, that's a volcanic characteristic. Correct. 
For example, you can imagine a good balanced oranges would be made from Spanish oranges and Madeiran oranges. You can imagine the acidity and the sweetness. And the wine is like that. How about tomatoes? They grow tomatoes on Isla? Yes, they grow tomatoes. That makes sense. Yeah. Because, you know, Santorini and... There is a good tomato production in the island. The main agriculture activity in the island, it's two. Two main activities. It's the banana trees and the vineyards. But then you have quite a lot of other uh, cultivations. Organic. Uh, I'm having organic wines for a few years now. This year was the first Cercial Organic to be bottled in the future. It's a big uh, administrative and paperwork headache. Is that true? Jesus Christ, it's crazy. But uh, the wines are going very well. Not every year you are successful because the lack of uh, products in the grapes make them with lower resistance to the climate conditions. But um, I'm quite happy. There is a 2009, very good, 2012, wonderful. And the Cercial this year was a big surprise for the first time, organic Cercial. So something for the future. Have you ever thought about doing still dry wines for the table? Uh, I have just signed contract with uh, four farmers, Verdalho farmers, from vineyards that I know very well. And um, those vineyards will pass into our administration to uh, start next year producing still white from Verdalho. We will have to make some investment in specific equipment for the white wines. And we will try to work in a long-term perspective, and we will produce only if it is good and different from what people are doing there. And you don't have big risk there, because if the wine doesn't work for still, you can always add the alcohol and then start aging it. So the risk is not big to lose grapes or wine. The only risk is the investment in the equipment that we have to make, that it can end up after year after year. If I'm not happy with the wine, will be a problem. It's different when you own the vineyard, right? You're stuck with it in a way. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah. I mean, it's your fruit. You have to yeah, deal with it. Exactly. You know? Exactly. But one of the other things you've done in the past and continue to do is blend some of those grape varieties. Oh, yes. That's something that I really love. I think my favorite wines are becoming more and more and more wines and blends made with different varieties. Even yesterday at the Philadelphia tasting was wonderful because I had there two wines from the historic series blended with different grape varieties and everyone astonished why I was doing that. I do that for some reason. The main reason is I find that different grape varieties can complete much better each other. They can be complementary. Yes. For example, the Baltimore rainwater where I have this Cercial uh, with Verdalho and a little bit of Tinta Negra just to make it a little bit smoother. It's fantastic. Then I was presenting for the first time the library company that it's a blend of Verdalho, Malvasia and Tinta Negra. So when I have the possibility to make blends of different grape varieties, I'm very happy. 
why do you think that the fashion for that fell away over the years? I mean, it feels like the industry had this setup where they said, okay, everything's going to be from one grape and that's going to determine the style of that wine. You know, whether no. it's Tinta Negra Mole or one of these more noble no, grapes. No, it's just like that. It's just traditional. And you are uh, chained to these uh, traditional ideas. My thinking is different. You have to respect tradition every second of your life making Madeira wine. But there are things you can try. In the past, 18th century, 19th century, you had wines blended with different grape varieties. They were just Madeira. Dry or medium dry or rainwater. Who cares? The important thing is, if you have a good wine, why should you drink the wine with the name Sercial or Boal on the label? What do you prefer? To have a good wine without the name of the grape or a normal wine without anything extraordinary with the name of the grape? I prefer to have a good wine written Madeira, medium dry, the age. I prefer to have it with different grape varieties. I prefer. Of course, I keep producing all those Sercial, this and that, and, uh, and I always do my best, but uh, they are really challenging the... I have uh, wines for with uh, produced from different grape varieties here in the US. A few already. We made the Franklin, we made the Jefferson, the Library Company, the Rainwater. In Belgium, for example, I have special projects for the Michelin star restaurants. One of the wines and the sommeliers there are, you know, they are very professional. They for me, where you can find one of the countries where you can find very good sommeliers. They are not attached to those traditional ideas. They just want a good wine. And I'm making two wines over there in a range of five. Two of them are a mix of different grape varieties. They don't care. And they sell a lot. Is it possible to make a Madeira without a heated room, without a heated warehouse? Is it possible to make it without an Estufa jam? Um, well, it's like this. Warehouses where you have the casks are not heated. They are just warmer because you have a roof uh, or they are closed. They are so closed that in my warehouses I have windows to open to refresh them because to avoid that concentration in the sugar, as I told you. But uh, then you have this artificial heating system that is called the Stufers. You can have that and I also have that for the basic and three years old wine. You're saying you don't use that for the better wines? No, not at all. I see. I, I all my that. wines over five years old are aged in casks. Only the three years old are aged in commas in this uh, heating system that is the Stufers. And even these wines, I still pass them... I allow two years of resting before using them, and some still pass in wood, if I have wood available. So you're saying the heated room, kind of like the color edition, was used to mimic age. It was used to make it seem more mature faster. Correct. The Stufa system is used just to try to imitate or fasten aging, but the wines are very different. It's impossible. But it's not a necessary style of Madeira. It doesn't have to happen. And in fact, usually what you're saying is it doesn't. No, it must exist for the three years old. In three years, you won't reach 
the style of wine you get heating them in the stainless steel vats for three months. It's impossible. What innovations have you been exploring or realms have you been looking at? Follow your intuition. That's my big innovation all the time. But I created quite interesting things like single casks, single vineyards. So I have uh, wines from single casks, from single vineyards. I have just single vineyards wines, blends uh, over 20 years. I have blends of 30 years, 40 years. I have uh, improved considerably the since 1995 the aging of uh, uh, Tinta Negra in the traditional way. I give a big value to the Tinta Negra. I also have, for example, uh, Kuleitesh dated wines from single casks, from single vineyards of Tinta Negra. And now the last important thing I believe was extremely important was I was the first producer in Madeira to have the name Tinta Negra on the label. So you actually think it's a pretty good grape? Because sometimes you read that it's like some basic workhorse. It's, a, it's an incredible grape. I really think you can make good wines. You just have to take good care and you have to work it the same passion as you work the white varieties. And I think the bottlings I've made of Tinta Negra really are really good. I have just bottled two new ones, a 97 and a 99, also with the name Tinta Negra. So I have been the first, second and third <laughs> in the history of Madeira to make the bottling uh, with the name Tinta Negra. They are really good. I really like it very much. Ricardo Freitas of Barbeto inherited a winery where nothing had changed for a very long time. And in the meantime, he's tried to do everything in Madeira. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. My pleasure. Ricardo Freitas of Barbeto on Madeira. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.